This week on the Back Table Podcast. We have a sixth sense about uh, where that invisible barrier that if you go beyond, you're going to get a complication. There's a sense of where that border is. And the specialists, the IRs that I know, like to go right up to that border and sometimes climb up that border without actually crossing it and just right there and push it as much as possible. But but knowing just how much to push and when to stop and when to back off is incredibly important. I think that has to do with experience. It has to do with anatomy. It has to do with knowledge of what you're doing. It has to do with the materials that you're working with. It has to do with complication avoidance and knowing what's going on. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your home for all things IR and otherwise minimally invasive. Before we dive into our topic today, just want to say a quick word from our sponsor, RadPad. RadPad radiation protection products developed by physicians for physicians and clinically proven to protect during CINE and digital subtraction angiography. Don't bet your health on anything less. Trust RadPad protection for all your interventions. See radpad.com for more information and contact info at radpad.com to learn more about radiation safety CME credits for you and your team. This is your host, Jacob Fleming. We're back with part three in this series on osteoporosis and treatment of vertebral compression fractures with Dr. Beal. So before we talk technical details, I'd just like you to give our audience a sense of magnitude of, uh, you know, how many levels of vertebral augmentation are you treating in a year? So we do... Uh, Year over year, we do between six and 700 patients a wow. year. So we do do a lot and uh, have done a lot. And look, if I could do twice or three times as many, I would do that. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is one of the best things that, that we do. It's the best thing for people. It's durable, it's sustainable, it's life-saving, life-prolonging. There are very few things we do that have this degree of impact on people. And I love it. So we've, we've gotten really good at it. We have all the tools. To be able to do it, we do vertebroplasty, we do balloon kyphoplasty, we do implant augmentation with the spine jack. One of the things that I'm really looking at is uh, bringing a vertebral body stent mm-hmm. uh, into the mix. Uh, I like the stent because you can pair it with the screw and do, a, at the incident level of fracture, do multi-column treatment. It's called screw-assisted internal fixation. That term is coined by uh, Alessandro Sinfoni, our colleague out of Switzerland. And this is the ability to treat severe fractures and join all three columns and treat somebody at the incident level. So, you know, one of the things I, I want to, listen, I want, I want, I want people to know what I'm about ready to say, because if you measure how much a vertebral fracture moves after uh, you take an intact fracture and the end plates move hardly at all, you break it in a, in a mechanical cadaveric model and you span it with uh, it moves like this. So you, uh, an in, intact vertebrae here, a fractured vertebrae, the end plates move like this. A lot of movement, right? You span that with pedicle screws and rods, it goes down to this. Barely any change at all. You do a kyphoplasty, end plates go way down. You do screw-assisted internal fixation, even farther, a greater amount of decrease. And then if you take this and you span it with additional screws and rods, it doesn't change it hardly at all. Spanning screws and rods don't do a lot to decrease the motion that's caused by a fracture. They just don't, it doesn't work that well. So you need some anterior column support. Mm -hmm. If we have the ability to do anterior column support, take the incident level fracture, treat that, back it up. And because 
if you have a severe fracture in front, and, and I'm using the three-column description by Denis, middle column is between the posterior portion of the vertebral body through the, the middle of the posterior elements. That's the middle column. The posterior portion of the vertebral body, if you do a great kyphoplasty and you take a severe and unstable fracture and you just do balloon kyphoplasty, the portion of that vertebral body at risk, greater stresses, is the middle column. Mm -hmm. So if you bridge the anterior column to the posterior column, that takes care of it. So it turns out you can do uh, something that reduces the fracture, a stent or a jack in the front, put screws and back it up to the all the way to the posterior column, and then you don't have to span it. You don't have to do spanning pedicle screws and rods. This is an incident fracture. You can take a severe or traumatic fracture, provided you don't have any instability beyond that, that incident level. You treat the fracture, you back it up with screws, and you will have locked that down and stabilized it as much as anybody at that incident level through two small incisions, mm -hmm. about about eight millimeters as as much as, as can be done, including spanning that whole construct with screws and rods. Screw assisted internal fixation. So this is this is coming out hopefully very soon. And this is being done in a few small centers, usually using a vertebral body stent. Uh, in a cadaver lab, which was done primarily by a guy named Guillaume de Turte in France, uh, we put pedicle jacks in. So the spine jack in front, joined to a pedicle screw in back, maximum stabilization. This is and done through small little poke holes. Mm -hmm. This this is something that used to be a three-column surgery. You go in and, and uh, go in through the front, go put pedicle screws and rods in the back, complication rates very high. I mean, this is a very invasive thing. We've gone from that to do fixing people with far less time, far less complications, morbidities, and, and blood loss and everything else, and uh, providing a really stable construct. So this is exciting things that are you're, you're going to be hearing and seeing about here very shortly in the future. Yeah, the, the screw-assisted internal fixation uh, concept, I think, is one of the most exciting things in interventional spine right now. Uh, we'll also try to get a link to that paper by uh, Dr. Sanfoni. Uh, it's got some great biomechanical data in there. And yes. uh, I, I agree, it's, it's ex very exciting. And especially the vertebral body stents, I think for many of our listeners, this probably elicits some head scratching. These are not really uh, stents that resemble the vascular kind we use in IR. These are more kind of like balloons with a border in a, in a sense, that's kind of how I describe them. And, um, it, it seems like, uh, there's, there's some definitely a lot of work being done with them in Europe and Asia and, uh, in the U S we're a little bit behind with that, but it sounds like you're saying we can expect to see the advent of that on our shores, hopefully before long. Oh yeah. Let me give you a couple more things. So for the, the listeners that really want something new. Here's a couple of new things that um, my guess is you've not heard of before. So number one, uh, shaped balloons. So tell me why we put a balloon to press up a flat surface that is the end plate with a round balloon. It doesn't make much sense, mm -hmm. right? So I'll submit to you that I think a flat surface is better pushed by a flat surface than a round surface. Uh, just simple geometry, simple physics. And so the shaped balloons that come in that, to be able to push up against a flat surface with another flat surface, these are coming down the pike. Balloon within balloon technology. And we have 
multiple balloons that I've seen that you can reduce the, the fracture in multiple different areas, but multiple balloons to be able to press different areas of the vertebral body has to be separated on a catheter or anything like that to be able to reach different areas. What would be nice would be to have balloon within balloon technology to be able to do it within the same balloon to have something that's directional capable and the ability to do different shapes and different things within the vertebral body. So that's coming to you soon. The other thing is uh, different alloy. So the stent material that the VBS that's uh, done by uh, J&J Depucentes is, is cobalt chrome. So, you know, cobalt chrome is the same thing. A lot of hip and knee replacements are made out of. It's a time tested alloy, but it's not great in terms of uh, tensile strength. Um, it, titanium alloy, same thing. It's been around for a long time. I just looked at a new alloy that's uh, molybdenum and rhenium. It's called Moore. And this stuff is uh, is twice as strong, half as the size because it's uh, the strength, increased strength and, and um, overall uh, resistance uh, will allow you to get by with using less metal um, in terms of heft. So it's, it's non-reactive to tissue. It's stronger. It's lighter. It's um, much greater resistance to, uh, for hoop strength. Uh, it's, it's, it's much more, at least if you have enough strength to move it, uh, moldable, formable. So this stuff in terms of the um, new alloy to be able to do great things, it's very strong and very light is may turn the next page on what we're able to do inside the vertebral body. So this is, uh, these two things combined with uh, good film material, I think is, is, is going to be a very, very much essential. And so one of the new cements I've been using recently is uh, Vertifix HV, and it's it goes starts off at 350 pascal seconds. Um, it, most cements harden like this and get more viscous like this. This goes to mix it 350 pascal seconds solidly. It has 18 minutes working time. That's been a real advancement for me to be able to have something that's similar to the European uh, cement cohesion that we don't have here that was developed hmm. for the spine jack. Uh, this is really works well with that. It works well with pretty much anything. So that's on the market now, but the two things, the shape balloon and the new more alloy, uh, that hopefully will be coming soon. That's uh, really exciting. Uh, one thing about the Vertifix, seeing it, uh, some of your work with that, I, it has these cool uh, barium indicator beads. So that's, uh, I think, a huge advantage. You know, one of the boogeymen, real boogeymen, that we're always fighting vertebral augmentation is uh, cement extravasation and especially pulmonary emboli. You and I yeah. uh, are both well aware of the uh, case report that was uh, shown in NEJM uh, earlier this year, pretty devastating uh, cement yeah. pulmonary embolus. And I would basically chalk that up to, you know, whenever something like that comes up, it's basically becomes an argument for we shouldn't be doing vertebral augmentation. But th that that is a failure of of treatment and there's there's no reason to have pulmonary emboli like that and so as our armamentarium has expanded we have more tools that make it safer more possible to do complex vertebral augmentation that cement is definitely one thing that uh, i think is really exciting because you can really see the movement of the cement you can tell if you're yeah. kind of getting close to the venous plexus and uh, the other stuff you're describing too, I think it's just expanding 
what can be treated minimally invasive versus with pan, uh, spanning pedicle screws and rods that don't actually help. <laughs> I, so yep. I, personally, I'm an optimist when it comes to this, but I think that uh, in the next 10 years or so, uh, these kind of fairly invasive spine surgeries for trauma will hopefully become more uncommon and we, we move toward, uh, you know, vertebral body stenting safe technique and using some of the, you know, just directional balloons and indicator cement. I think this all, it, these are all things we should be embracing to advancing the technique. Yeah, definitely. And I'll, I'll uh, add a little bit about some of the complications with this. So, you know, semantic extravasation is well known. And I saw a case that it had a, a cardiac embolus and it, it was a, a earlier in the year, it was a woman in her thirties and they treated her with open heart surgery for a section of the cardiac embolus. I mean, what world are these people living in? I mean, so I got a call about a month ago from one of our colleagues, a little bit panicked about an IVC extravasation. Uh, so this little glob of cement that came out in the IBC and, and, uh, she was worried about that. I said, well, just go in and basket it out. Huh. Just, just take it out. Just go in with a, you know, a basket or a snare, some type of, uh, foreign body retrieval system and, and take it out. So one of the things people don't understand is that that cardiac little spike of cement that goes up in the heart that people were so panicked about, ironically, it is the easiest thing in the world to remove through the femoral vein, right? I mean, it's, it's not hard at all. So one of the things about cement that people sometimes have a hard time grasping is it's great for resistance, for compression mm -hmm. and distraction. You could take uh, a little, a little chalk piece of ch cement chalk shape, and you could take it, you could set it down on the table and you could bang on the top of it and you cannot break it. You can bang as hard as you want, but you take it like this, tink. Yep. Break it. There's almost zero resistance to shear force. Mm -hmm. So if you see something like this, go in and with a snare and take it out of the femoral vein and do not for you know, under any circumstances, open a 30 something year old woman's heart because oh. you're trying to take a, a piece of cement out uh, of the right atrium that could have been easily retrieved well, percutaneously. So that's one of the things, that's a huge misnomer. I, I think that's to, to publish that in as, as w without complete knowledge of number one, how that happens. And number two, how you treat it is that's irresponsible for the medical journal. That's that it should not be happened. How you treat it is the second thing. How it happens is either inattention or lack of knowledge about what you're looking at, neither of which are appropriate. So either number one, you, you don't recognize when extravasation is happening or number two, you see it, but you don't understand what it is or you're not paying attention to what it is. So none of this should ever be the case and people can get pulmonary emboli. One of the things I want uh, people to understand is that the incidence of pulmonary emboli, including small emboli in the Venman's paper, it was 26%. So it's more, so small pulmonary emboli with augmentation may be more common than the incidence of blue eyes in the United States. So these are really common phenomenon. Anything that happens in one out of four patients is probably normal and expected. It's just the volume of emboli. You don't want big emboli 
and you don't want a lot of it because you can hurt people with it. Mm-hmm. But small emboli are, is kind of a normal part of it. I mean, it's, it doesn't cause any problems. Small emboli uh, have been around and present for a long time. But it's just people don't recognize it unless you actually look for it, preferably with the CT that you can mm-hmm. actually see small little bits of radio opacities in the, in the pulmonary arteries. So I love what you described about the intravascular foreign body retrieval. Obviously, as an interventional radiologist, we do tons of IVC filter removals. So it's it's something right. that's definitely within the wheelhouse. And another reason why I think that interventional radiologists should be very involved in vertebral fracture treatment, because, you know, you hear this all the time, uh, and it's not to knock on any surgeons, but every once in a while you hear a surgeon saying, oh, IR shouldn't be doing X, Y, Z because you can't manage the complications. And I would submit that the, what you just described is a, a place where we really can and are the best to manage the complication. And B, this is a little tangential, but I know you'll agree with me on this, is that a very significant portion of our work as interventional radiologists is managing other people's complications and, <laughs> and doing it as minimally invasive as possible. Avoid, you know, d- do we really need to do a sternotomy? You know, and so... You know, preaching to the choir here, but give your friendly interventional radiologist a call. If you got some IVC cement, that's something that is potentially amenable to, you know, just a, a fairly simple uh, retrieval procedure. Yeah, anytime. That's a good point, Jacob. Anytime somebody says, well, only I, a fill in especially blank, should be doing another blank procedure, you know, you could be pretty sure that none of that's true, yeah, right? Yeah. Or none of that's valid. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we, we do manage complications routinely of, of other procedures. And yeah, th- that's exactly what that is, is, is taking care of your own complications. And we, you know, we don't, I don't expect everybody to take care of their complications. And we're, we're certainly happy to help other specialties with theirs. Sure. No, no problem, right? We do complication uh, treatments all the time. And we're happy to do that. We just, I just don't want to be on the other side of that inaccurate statement. Somebody telling our specialty what we should be doing and shouldn't be doing based on their opinion. So pretty much as soon as people say that, you can bet that that's not the case. (laughs) And so, you know, as much as managing complications, we're uh, interventional radiology really about complication avoidance and early recognition. And so I think that's really crucial when it comes to the problem of cement extravasation. And so can you just describe for our listeners, um, kind of a situation you're, you're putting in cement and, uh, your spidey sense goes off and, uh, what, what does that? One of the things about IR is it, it is that I've noticed because I, I work primarily with other specialties now. I don't work really with other interventional radiologists is we, we have a sixth sense about, uh, where that invisible barrier that if you go beyond, you're going to get a complication. There's a sense of where that border is. And the specialists, the IRs that I know like to go right up to that border and sometimes climb up that border without actually crossing it and just right there and push it as much as possible. But, but knowing just how much to push and when to stop and when to back off is incredibly important. I think that has to do with experience. It has to do with anatomy. It has to do with knobology of what you're doing. It has to do with the materials that you're working with. It has to do with complication avoidance and knowing, knowing what's going on. And uh, I wrote 
a recent book chapter on complications of vertebral augmentation. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of different types of complications. And before I talk about any other complication of this, I want to uh, make the point that there was a 2019 paper by Lou that categorized complications from uh, vertebral augmentation. Interesting part about this paper is that he also categorized complications of not doing vertebral augmentation. Mm -hmm. So as much as we talk about complications, all of this has to be done under the overarching knowledge that complications from not doing vertebral augmentation, somebody with a painful vertebral fracture that's a candidate for augmentation, is nine times higher than complications doing the vertebral augmentation. Nine times. Yeah. So this is 15.52% compared to just, uh, you know, just a very small percentage of patients that, that had complications with vertebral augmentation. So whenever you're filling in a, a vertebral body and you see extravasation, the ability to recognize that extrav pattern is incredibly important. If it looks like the bone that you're filling, the reticulated appearance of the medullary cancellous bone, and it's going back and it's not flattening out once it gets to the, the spinal canal, that's in the pedicle. If it goes globular under the pedicle, posterolaterally, that's posterolateral extravasation. That's no man's land. You won't hurt somebody like this. If it starts to go back, or let me go back one, if you have a vascular fill, that's easy to recognize. That's, that's vascular, duh, paraspinal veins. If it goes back and right in the middle of the vertebral body and it starts to flatten out, that's the basovertebral plexus. And if it starts to make a lenticular shape, it looks, looks like this, lenticular shape, stop. So if you keep going, you're going to squirt it out into the canal and that's where you're running in trouble. Mm -hmm. The reason it goes and flattens out initially and then starts to make a lenticular biconvex shape, that's the anterior epidural ligaments. You have lateral ligaments there. You have a midline anterior epidural ligament called the ligament of Trollard. And God put the anterior epidural ligaments there so you could do vertebral augmentation <laughs> and know when to stop. So that, that tells you when you see that flat area of extravasation that's more dorsal that's coming along that basovertebral plexus and it starts to get a bilobed, uh, a biconvex shape, a lenticular shape, that's when you stop and you let it harden in the anterior epidural space between the lateral anterior epidural ligaments. And if you look at this on CT, you'll see and I have numerous examples. I can I can pull I can find one now within within two minutes. It's confined on the lateral components, and it has a little cleft in the middle, like a little cleft in the chin. It is, and that is the, the ligament of Trollard. Mm -hmm. That's why that little cleft is there because of the anterior epidural ligaments. And so, if you know the anatomy of extravasation and you understand how this happens and what to look for. You know, sometimes, you know, we extravasate my fellows panicking, right? It comes back and has the same patterns bone or it comes posterolaterally under the pedicle. I'm like, ah, don't, you know, don't worry about that. And we go back and we, we CT almost everybody afterwards checking our civil engineering of the spine. And he's like, well, how'd you know where that was? I said, because that's what it looks yeah. like, right? It's, it's the uh, immediate recognition of it. And, and if you are able to kind of catalog this, you understand the level of importance because extravasation in some degree is normal. Well, it is normal. 
I mean, I extravasate almost every single case I do, but I've not ever knowingly had a nerve root or other injury at all based on that extravasation knock wood mm-hmm. at all that I've, I've known about, never. Because typically we're able to recognize where that goes. And there's, there's papers that catalog extravasation rates up to 73%. And it depends on where you look for it under fluoro, by x-ray, by CT. But you, you can have extravasation rates that are, that are incredibly high. And I'm sure my extravasation rate is over 50%. But it's not about extravasating. It's about filling the vertebral body in plate between the pedicle, accomplishing the goal. Mm-hmm. Because people that say, oh, I just poured a couple of cc's of cement in there and patients do great is not true. It's not correct. It's not. And we should stop saying that because there's whole, you know, a rotors paper, the Swiss registry. One of the things that you can do, the single modifiable thing that you can do to get better outcomes is inject more mm-hmm. cement. And as Alexis Kalekis says, our colleague in Greece, between the end plates, uh, uh, end plate to end plate, between the pedicles, that's how you mm-hmm. fill it. And to fill all of the clefts, that's necessary because if you don't fill the cleft, the, the, this has also been documented. That's a single thing that filling that cleft that you can be most assured that will decrease the patient's pain. Absolutely. And it's, um, you know, uh, being in the middle of my diagnostic residency right now, you, you read tons of spine CTs and we see some, you know, work from all over from outside facilities and wherever else and see this not infrequently with, uh, you know, looks like they may be injected two cc's of, of cement and it, it kind of makes you wonder what was even the benefit of that procedure other than a billable CPT. And so that I, I am really happy to see uh, a lot of recognition of the importance of filling the cleft I see this a lot, uh, posts on Twitter, just in the last maybe year or two, uh, interventional radiologists who are treating a lot of VCFs are getting very meticulous about their technique. And personally, I, I would credit a lot of that to, uh, your influence and some of the other people working in this area, just really making us come down hard on the technique. How can we push it further? And then what you're talking about, about extravasation and, and recognizing the patterns that just, it sounds so important because. When you notice that, you know, what do you do next? It sounds like you're saying you, you give some time for it to, to cure and, you know, harden so that you're not worsening in the extravasation, but then do you, you don't abort the procedure there. You, you continue with the, the goal. No, you just, look, the best, the best thing about cement is it hardens faster in the body than it does on in the back table. So we let it harden. I mean, look, we have time, relax. We have time and it hardens. And if you, if you go somewhere, you don't like it to go stop and you can reposition the needle, you can reaccess the vertebral body. They just stop and let it harden. And then when it comes along the basal vertebral plexus and it comes up to there, you know, I, I kind of like that because I know that if I just wait a few minutes and let it plug that exit point into the canal. Mm -hmm. Then after that, I can just fire away yeah. and inject yeah. a pretty, pretty rapid fire with good assurance that the basal vertebral plexus, the most common area that you can get egress of the cement that can hurt the patient is already closed, closed door. Yeah. That's a great, great way of looking at it. Um, and so extravasation, yeah. I think is, it's a very important topic and something that we have to be continuously aware of during the procedure, but not something that should dissuade 
the operators from accomplishing the goal they, they came in to fulfill in the first place. Extravasation is normal. I mean, it's, it happens the majority of the time. So just, you know, just learn, learn what is good extravasation versus bad extravasation. Learn what causes symptoms and what doesn't. Learn how to manage it. Learn how to accomplish the goal because somebody injects two cc's of cement and an L1 or L3 vertebral body, that's just not enough. That, that is, that's, that's, that whenever somebody doesn't get pain relief, they call it a failure of kyphoplasty. No, it's a failure of technique. It's not, yeah, it's not a failure of kyphoplasty. It's a failure of this, right? Not knowing that you need to put more in to accomplish the goal, to fill that cleft. To, to get rid of the vacuum phenomenon that's going on in the vertebral body, to be, to have the ability to make an intra-body strut that can bear weight over time. It's, that's what you're doing. You're not trying to glue the fracture together. Yeah. And the patient can absolutely have pain relief, mm -hmm. but that's not what you're trying to do. You're trying to correct a pathologic vertebrae so they can bear weight on that thing for however much longer they have to live. That's what you're trying to do. Excellent. And so while we're talking about fills, I was wondering if you could just briefly talk about how do you, uh, how do you decide ab amongst your toolkit, vertebroplasty versus kyphoplasty versus implant augmentation? What are the things you consider? You know, I love implant augmentation. I mean, if you can reduce it, you probably should. And there's nothing that reduces it as good as the spine jack in the U.S. We only have VBS stent uh, outside. It's all OUS. Uh, but you know, if you can reduce it, might as well should. We like the jack. I do a lot less balloon kyphoplasty than I did at one point in time uh, because of the reduction component. I really want a balloon that I can press up against the end plate, flat to flat surface, and really get great um, movement on that. I think I'm excited about that new prospect. I still do, you know, modern amount of vertebral plasty. I mean, if if you have a fracture that's non-compressed and you just add some stabilization component of that vertebral body, why not? So, but, you know, frankly, Jacob, as you know, I mean, we love augmentation. Neil Chonard, one of my friends out in, uh, who's worked for Proliance, uh, he's an ortho spine guy. Uh, he ranks, if memory serves, 21 different things that they do to the spine. They, they have a, a ranking in terms of outcome and patient satisfaction. And they do everything, you know, soup to the all the way from spinal deformity surgery, all the way to simple injections. The single greatest thing, the highest ranked procedure in terms of patient satisfaction and outcomes is vertebral augmentation. That's why we like it. And is it, it works and the immediacy of how fast it works is also very gratifying, but you know, I'm not about immediacy. I'm about, I'm about durability mm -hmm. and I want patients to get better and stay better. And, you know, I worked the, on my whole career to have a my mother practice, meaning that if my mother came in, I would be happy and satisfied with the way that she was treated, not only episodically, but durably as well. And so I think if we, you know, now that much of IR is more of a surgical sub than it is part of radiology, I think we have to look at that. I think we have to look at a, a sustainability as especially, I think we have to look at comprehensive treatment. I think we have to look at making our mark as minimally invasive surgery or whatever we want to call this. I think we probably uh, ought to have a, a new name 
is, you know, it's, it's, it's really not very descriptive of what we do. Mm-hmm. And I think we just have to start looking at life to make not only a viable existence as, as practitioners, but to advance that, that practice of minimally invasive fix it shop type work that takes everything into consideration in treating the patient in a holistic manner. So we, we get not only disease process correction, we get the ability to repair, correct, fix somebody in a minimally invasive way and whatever it takes to make that durable and to, to correct that problem. And as soon as we do that, I think that's what makes it sustainable. That concludes part three with Dr. Beal. Stay tuned for the final part coming out soon. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, Brian Hartley. Our audio team lead is Kieran Gannon with support from Caleb Hodson and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Anne Dang. And newsletter by Lauren Fang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.